If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, the stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all, not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. That was not me talking. That was Holden Caulfield. These are the famous opening lines to J.D. Salinger's 1951 novel, The Catcher in the Rye. My dad bought me this book when I was a freshman in high school, not for any particular reason. He just laid it down in my bedroom one day for me to read. I remember disliking nearly every classic novel I had read up to that point, so I wasn't expecting anything different from yet another piece of American literature. Yet, I opened up the book anyway and started to read. Honestly, after the first paragraph, I was hooked. I read the entire book in maybe two days. The novel is told from the first-person perspective. The main character and narrator is a 16-year-old prep school student named Holden Caulfield. It is Holden's voice we hear the moment we open up the book, and it was Holden's voice which drew me in as a teenager. Unlike most narrators in classic novels who sound like old men in three-piece suits observing life from a rocking chair, Holden sounded like someone you can meet at school, on the basketball court, at a party. In fact, I will even go one step further. Holden didn't just sound like some high school kid you might sit next to in geometry class. He sounded, well, like me, like the unending inner monologue playing at all times through my head. Reading The Catcher in the Rye as a teenager felt like someone took my brain and just plopped it down on the page, figuratively speaking, of course. The more I read of Holden, the more he reminded me of myself. His bitterness, his angst, his introspection, his subdued rebelliousness, even his literariness. Holden was an outsider, a social critic, a loner obsessed with authenticity. Throughout the book, he complains that he is surrounded by phonies. Phonies are conformists, fakes, masters of small talk, incapable of deep thought or conversation. Well, as a teenager, I could relate. I felt Holden's rage at the idiocy and superficiality and duplicity I thought I observed among my fellow high school students. Holden was an outsider. I was an outsider. We were the perfect match. I had found my soulmate in book form. Yet, something very strange happened the following year when I became a sophomore. We were assigned to read Catcher in the Rye, both I and all of those phonies around me. As it turned out, everyone loved the book. The phonies, perhaps more than anyone. The jocks, the cheerleaders, the smart kids, the dumb kids, the popular, the outcasts, the marching band, chess club. Everyone loved it. I will never forget one conversation I had with my best friend, S, at the time. S was a total frat boy conformist. He was on the football team, went to all of the keg parties, had no interest in literature or music or anything cultural. 
Yet when S read, or rather was forced to read, Catcher in the Rye, he had the same reaction I did. Holden reminds me so much of myself. That is the paradox at the heart of Catcher in the Rye. It is a book about not being understood, about being different from the crowds, about anger at those who play the social game to their advantage. And yet, it has universal appeal. So many of those who read it feel that they are Holden, that they are the misunderstood, embittered outcast in a sea of superficiality. If everyone around you is a phony, except for you, but all these phonies think that they are the authentic ones, what does that make you, in fact? And what does it make them? You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 26, 2 Samuel 6. Kiss me once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't When Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, it had an immeasurable impact on German philosophical thought. Darwin's theory of natural selection showed that, in fact, there was a reason for why we are the way we are. Nature selected us to be so. Whatever genes we have, the genes that allow us to climb, to run, to sing, to get fevers, to remember people's names, to be afraid of dogs growling at us, these genes have been implanted in us over millennia because they help us to survive and procreate. Those folks who were not lucky enough to have these genes died off long ago, taking their undesirable genes with them down to the grave. In Germany, and not only in Germany, philosophers took the scientific theory of Darwinism and applied it to society and culture. Darwin showed that it was not just an accident that we are the way we are. In fact, we had been selected to be a certain way, and this VIP status was neatly contained within our genes. Well, many German philosophers looked at Darwin's theory and began to salivate a bit. They recognized that if nature made us special, then some of us could be more special than others. If nature worked based on the principle of hierarchy, then there must be hierarchies within the hierarchy. Why did the sun never set on the British Empire? because the Brits had better genes, smarter, craftier, stronger genes. Cheers. And was it just a coincidence that Bach, Beethoven, Haydn, and Mozart were all born with German blood? Surely not. Germans had just been pre-selected to be superior musical geniuses. And if you were poor or stupid or struggling in any way, that was seen as just part of the Darwinian cycle of life. Your genes need to die out to make room for the stronger ones. We all know that the Nazis believed that each race of people was fundamentally different, that Scandinavians and the Chinese and Africans and Jews and Indians all had their own place on the hierarchy. 
Naturally, Germans were all the way at the top, and Jews were way down at the bottom, with Slavs bringing up the rear. But these racist, truly racist ideas had been around for at least three generations before the Nazis took power. This can be seen in the philosophy of a man named Alexander Till. Till was born in 1866 in the German city of Lauenstein and died in Saarbrücken in 1912. While his ideas were bandied about in both world wars, Till didn't live to see either of them. Till translated Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra into English in 1896. In his own works, he claimed, among other things, that slums were good because they helped purge society of the weak. He also thought that disabled and mentally ill people should be left to starve, with food only given to the fit and the healthy. In 1893, he wrote that, quote, it is the right of the stronger race to annihilate the lower race, unquote. But when you think about it, it's rather counterintuitive that Darwin's theory of natural selection had the effect that it did in Germany and in many other European countries. It caused people to divide humanity up into races and to think of themselves as fundamentally different from people of other ethnicities. Darwin's theory, however, at its core, does not show how different we are all from each other. It shows that we are all uncannily the same. We are all here after thousands of years. All of our genes have withstood time's test. We all evolved from the same source. Not only does Darwin's theory demonstrate the undeniable similarities between all humans, it also connects us with all animals, and even with trees, fish, plants, bacteria. Darwin's ideas at first implied, and later insisted, that the same biological logic connects all life forms with each other. None of us is that different from the other life forms around us, whether they be humans or pigs or spiders or dandelions. Today, we can measure these similarities through methods which would have been unthinkable to Darwin. But his principle stands, we are astonishingly similar, practically identical. All humans share 99.9% .9 of the same DNA. A measly 0.1% is all which separates us. Think about that. If you met someone and found out that you share 999 out of 1,000 things in common, you would quickly rejoice at having discovered a new best friend. The difference between us and animals is a bit more, but not much. Humans and chimpanzees differ by about only 1.2%. Humans and strawberries, yes, strawberries, share 60% of the same DNA. In the Haftarah for the Parsha of Shemini, we read from the second book of Samuel. We read about King David and of his ascent to the throne upon the downfall of King Saul. David was a rising star on the world stage, young, handsome, ambitious, flamboyant, David had been living in Kiryat Ya'arim, a small city about 20 kilometers west of Jerusalem. David assembled 30,000 men to carry the ark from Kiryat Ya'arim to the capital. Along the way to his new throne, it is said that David celebrated and danced as though in a parade, playing the harp and clashing cymbals together with all of his men. 
When he finally got to Jerusalem, the Torah tells us that David wore his finest clothes and danced with great passion before God. However, while David was clearly happy, the same cannot be said for Michal. Michal was Saul's daughter, and she watched with great bitterness through the palace window at David weeping and dancing before God. Torah tells us that she, quote, despised him in her heart, unquote. David then made a feast for his kingdom, offering everyone around him bread and cake. Meanwhile, Michal watched this occur, and she came out of her home to meet David. She said to him then, more or less, how can you behave like this? Aren't you supposed to be king? You are dancing around and uncovering yourself amid fools. In short, Michal tried to shame David. She tried to get him to think that his natural way of behaving was somehow inappropriate and wrong. Here, confronted with Michal, David essentially faced two choices. He could either apologize to Michal and acknowledge his disrespectful conduct, or he could double down and say, this is who I am. This is what feels right to me. I'm not going to stop. Deal with it. David doubled down. He said to Michal, I'm going to continue to have fun. In fact, because of what you said, I'm going to dance even harder, party with even more idiots, be even more base and lewd. Notice what David has done here. He basically assumed that if he feels something to be right, it probably is, even if it is offensive and controversial to his opponents. From David's reaction to Michal, we can glean the following teachings. If you, in your heart, have reached some opinion or conclusion, you really don't need to worry that you are the only person who thinks this way and that everyone will disagree with you. We are all too similar for anything you say, think, or do to be that much of a loner. This is because, in fact, we are all loners, we are all rebels, we are all outcasts. It is the Holden Caulfield paradox once more. We all think we are different and that our opinions will be judged as outlandish or strange, but as the Holden Caulfield paradox shows, everyone has the same fear. The way to benefit from this paradox, then, is to accept that the more you express your embarrassing fears, radical beliefs, unheard of thoughts, the more that you will show others that you are exactly like they are. Ironically, when you try to conform, to cower before shame, to fit in, you make yourself more estranged and more of an outcast. But speak like Holden Caulfield, and you will suddenly have tons of friends. Don't hide your quirky individuality, as Michal compelled David to do. Instead, be like David and double down on it, no matter how afraid you are of being judged. This strategy is, ironically, the way you can absolutely avoid judgment. Our egos are constantly whispering into our ears all kinds of damaging, unhelpful, and most of all, inaccurate messages. And the most inaccurate and persistent of these messages is the one that tells us that we are different, we are misunderstood, we are the one authentic individual among a mass of phonies. The more you practice meditation, the more skillful you become at silencing this voice, the greater distance you attain between yourself and your slanderous ego. 
meditation can help you to learn that you are not the only one who is subject to an unending barrage of messages about how different and special and alienated you are from everyone else. In fact, everyone is subject to the same internal whispering. We are all outcast and misanthropes, and in that sense, we are all brothers. To read the inner monologue of Holden Caulfield is to meet yourself on the page, to finally see yourself in the form of another person. Yet, in fact, we are meeting ourselves all the time. Society is nothing but mirrors. For each time you converse with another person, another homo sapien, you are, biologically speaking, just meeting Holden Caulfield again. That is, you are meeting yourself. Smoke gets in your 